Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. The city of Bloomington is selling bonds to raise money for Mayor John Hamilton's park initiative. The major infrastructure project, which is estimated to cost around $10 million, would include extending the B-Line bicycle and commuter pathway to the city's east side. The proposal also calls for planting 1,400 trees and establishing beautification gateways to the city. City of Bloomington controller Jeff Underwood says the bonds, which are being marketed with the city's bicentennial, are being offered in $1,000 denominations. One of the ways that we finance uh, long-term projects is through the issuance of debt uh, bonds, specifically. Uh, This bond the mayor announced uh, back in late August, early September uh, 2018 is the city's uh, bicentennial year. Uh, And we've been celebrating, you know, 200 years of of investments uh, by by, uh, the citizens of Bloomington. And the mayor wanted to have uh, kind of a pay-forward project, and so he announced uh, $10 million worth of long-term uh, bicentennial projects uh, issued through the Parks Department. And there were three series, but basically it covered connecting trails, some uh, 1,400 trees being planted, gateways, the development of gateways into the city, alleyways improvements uh, along those lines. And as a part of that, he wanted to be able to offer these bonds to uh, local citizens. So our Series C, which includes um, the uh, 1,400 tree plantings, bonds are typically issued in denominations of $5,000. We worked with our underwriter, Hilliard Lyons, to, in the Series C, issue those in $1,000 denominations, so to make it easier for folks to buy. These are 20-year bonds, so you can buy a maturity from one year up to 20 years and anything in between uh, in amounts uh, that you'd like to invest if you're so inclined, and interest has been uh, strong. We talked to um, our folks at Hillary Alliance late yesterday evening and today as well, and the demand locally is uh, is strong, and so the mayor and, and the administration was happy to be able to offer that and offer the opportunity for folks to invest in projects that are going to last another 100 years or 200 years. Debt, like the bicentennial bonds the city is selling, typically increases in value the farther out it's purchased. In this case, Underwood says the 20-year bonds would mature at around 3 to 3.5%. Underwood says outside investors can also buy the city debt. Anyone can actually buy the bonds, but we specifically wanted to have an avenue for uh, local folks to buy. So you'll have... uh, financial institutions and and, uh, pension funds and uh, have the opportunity to to buy our bonds. Uh, We have rated uh, AA, which was an increase uh, over AA minus, so we were happy to see that. And there's always been strong interest in Bloomington, and um, the Standards & Poor, who's uh, the rating agency that looked over it, uh, 
uh, agreed that uh, Bloomington has um, the city of Bloomington has strong financial wherewithal, and that, that uh, they were happy to increase our rating on this. So we're very pleased about both of those. Underwood says the city is encouraging residents and supporters of the city's projects to buy the bicentennial bonds. Those interested in purchasing the city bonds can contact the Bloomington Hilliard Lions office. The Northwest Indiana Times reports that a tourism organization is seeking solutions to beach erosion along the Lake Michigan shoreline in northwestern Indiana. Lorelei Weimer, executive director of Indiana Dunes Tourism, says continued erosion threatens the tourism in Porter County. The Times reports that about 3 million tourists visit Porter County each year, mostly for Lake Michigan and its beaches. Weimer says she's working with the National Parks Conservation Association on a video showing the shoreline and erosion. The video should be completed by year's end. It will be used in local and statewide efforts to garner support for finding a solution to the beach erosion. On December 10th, over a thousand climate activists held sit-ins at 50 Democratic legislators' offices. The Washington, D.C. protests were sponsored by the Sunrise Movement, a youth-led organization. The demonstrators were protesting for progress on the Green New Deal. Specifically, they wanted legislators to form a select committee and plan it in time for Congress's winter recess. 143 participants were arrested in the sit-ins. If formed, the House of Representatives Select Committee would develop Green New Deal legislation. The goals for the bill would be greenhouse gas reduction, as well as a transition to 100% renewable energy. In addition, these changes would have to happen within 10 years. In a press release, a Sunrise co-founder asked politicians to support solutions that match the, quote, scale and urgency, unquote, of the climate crisis. Since the first Sunrise-led protest last month, 22 House Democrats have signed onto the proposal for a select committee. Last week marked the 35th anniversary of the Bhopal disaster, which is often considered the worst industrial disaster in history. The accident happened in the night of December 2, 1989, at a pesticide factory near Bhopal, India. A chemical tank failed, releasing the toxic gas methyl isocyanate, or MIC. The poisonous gas causes damage to the lungs, eyes, and throat. It can also damage the liver and kidneys. At least 3,700 people died from exposure to MIC. Over 550,000 people were injured. Bhopal residents experienced continued health issues stemming from the toxic gas leak. In 2010, seven employees of the pesticide factory were convicted of criminal negligence. They were sentenced to two years in prison and fined $2,000 each for their part in the disaster. A new study published in Nature Climate Change provides some hope for the Great Barrier Reef of Australia. The reef suffered severe bleaching events in 2016 and 2017. Researchers found that many corals which survived the 2016 bleaching event also survived the 2017 event even though the water temperatures were higher. The hope is that heat-tolerant corals will repopulate the reef. Only 7% of the reefs that make up the Great Barrier Complex have escaped bleaching entirely since the first recorded bleaching event in 1980. 
a full 61% have been severely bleached. The Climate Action Tracker is a prediction of future trends for climate change. It is updated annually by three European research organizations. This year, the report analyzed the policies set by governments that signed the Paris Accord. They found that even if all governments achieved their Paris Accord commitments, the Earth will still likely warm by 3 degrees Celsius. The Paris Accord set a goal half that low, at just 1.5 degrees Celsius. Since not all nations have signed the Paris Accord, warming could go even higher. Current warming is projected to be 3.3 Celsius degrees. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's Get Out and Hike, showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. This week I'm with Jill Vance, a naturalist at Monroe Lake, who will be talking to us about a few fine trails just south of Bloomington, Indiana. At Fairfax State Recreation Area on Monroe Lake, we have uh, one marked trail for people, and it's called the Big Oak Trail. It's uh, about a 1.7-mile loop, roughly, uh, with a little side loop off of that. They'll give you an extra quarter mile. Uh, It's called the Big Oak Trail because there is a big oak tree along it, uh, one of the trees uh, that survived the cutting when the land was being cleared for farmland and uh, has persevered up through today um, as the forest has grown back in around it. So it's pretty neat. It's by the North Trailhead, and it's definitely uh, worth checking out. Big Oak Trail is overall rated moderate. Uh, There is a couple, well, there's one very big steep hill climb, and you're going to hit it either way, whether you go in from the north or the south, you're going to end up climbing up. Um, But once you're up on the top of the hill, uh, it is flat and wide up on top. Uh, The lower section of the trail uh, crosses over uh, three or four little creek beds, so you want to be prepared make a little jump there. It is an accessible trail for children, um, although I probably wouldn't recommend it for uh, the toddler age range. And the the little, if you're looking to grab that little extra quarter of a mile, the evergreen loop that comes off the Big Oak Trail circles around the little pond and a planted um, evergreen area. Um, And it's a really scenic place and a good place to go in the spring, too, if you want to do some uh, frog watching or frog listening. Uh, It's at Fairfax State Recreation Area, which is one of our gated locations. Uh, So there is an entry fee charged uh, from late spring uh, all the way through the fall months. Uh, However, we do not charge there uh, during the winter. So mid-November to about mid-March, entry is free to Fairfax. Thank you, Jill. How old would you say this uh, oak tree is? Uh, well, when our map was made, they they noted it probably around 175 years old. I don't know that it's ever actually been cored. Um, I would I would put it probably at a guess at 200 plus. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. A rule prohibiting the sale and trade of terrestrial invasive plants is nearing approval by the state of Indiana. The public comment period is just one step in the approval process for the Terrestrial Invasive Plants Rule. That public comment period ends next week. WFHB Assistant News Director Sarah Vaughn has more. 
It's widely reported that invasive species cause more than $120 billion in economic damage in the U.S. each year. In Indiana, estimates vary, but it's reported that Hoosier landowners and land managers spend more than $8 million a year combating invasive plants alone. The state prohibited an extensive list of invasive aquatic plants in 2011. It's close to catching up where terrestrial invasives are concerned. The Natural Resources Commission preliminarily adopted a rule last July that prohibits the sale, distribution, and transport of 44 terrestrial invasive plants. The highly invasive Japanese honeysuckle made the list, along with three other varieties of honeysuckle. Japanese barberry, autumn olive, winter creeper, and Japanese stiltgrass also made the list, among others. Botanist Ellen Jaycart has been lecturing extensively to educate the public on invasive plants and to promote the state's terrestrial invasive plants rule. You can think of uh, invasive uh, species introductions on like an uh, exponential graph. You know, they, they come in and you hardly notice them, and they cover very small area at first. And there's usually a lag time, and then they start to expand, and they cover more and more and more and more ground. And often by the time that the public is aware of it, or people notice that this species has come in and taken over an area, it's covering so many acres that the control costs involved are humongous, are huge. So we point to the beginning part of that graph, and we say the best way to deal with invasive species is to simply keep them out whenever possible. And when it comes to invasive plants, the vast majority of our invasive plants come from horticulture, deliberate introductions. And what we need to do is prevent that introduction. And it'll save us so much money. It'll save us so many environmental impacts by not allowing these species to take over our natural areas. A public hearing scheduled for next Wednesday, December 19th, in Indianapolis will close out a four-month-long public comment period on the rule. Megan Abraham, the state's entomologist, says after a few more reviews, the rule could be formally adopted by next spring. Um, comments from the public can be made on whether or not they're in favor or against the rule. Um, then it has the public hearing, which is December 19th. Um, and then right after the public hearing, the comment period will close. And then uh, it has to be published as well as approved and signed off on by the governor's office. So those steps will basically take until April 2019 when the rule we expect will be given final adoption by the Natural Resources Commission. Botanist Alan Jaycart is the former chair of the Invasive Species Advisory Committee, a branch of the Indiana Invasive Species Council. She and the advisory committee provided the list of non-native plants that is found in the terrestrial invasive plants rule. I asked Jaycart just how much damage invasive terrestrial plants can do go into a natural area that has become dominated by invasive species. And I can think of, there are many, many thousands of acres of forest now in southern Indiana that have their understory completely dominated by calorie pear. That's Bradford pear that's escaped from plantings and invaded the forest. And when you walk through it, it's essentially a thorny thicket, and it displaces because all of that, that dense understory is shading out all of the normal wildflowers and ferns and grasses and sedges and young trees that should be on the forest floor, they're gone because of the invasion. So then that ripples out 
to affect the pollinators because they have very little to pollinate. The only, the only flowers they're going to see are the calorie pear flowers, which are only out for a week or two in April. The rest of the year, there's nothing there for them to pollinate. You have very little wildlife food being produced because, again, the only fruits that are going to be produced are calorie pear fruits. Those are the favorite food of starlings, so that works out well for them for the period of time when those fruits are ripe. But for the rest of the year, there is no other species producing anything for um, the, the wildlife that's out there. So we just see a huge decrease in um, native plants, in pollinators, in wildlife, once an area has um, become dominated by invasive plants. The calorie pear is native to China and Vietnam and is a particular favorite of developers. Jaycart says more municipalities are recognizing the threat of the calorie pear and encouraging developers, landscapers, and landowners to choose alternatives. There's plenty of recommended alternatives to calorie pear, um, from flowering dogwood to uh, juneberry or, or serviceberry to uh, Ohio buckeye. There's lots of sort of small tree alternatives out there. And more and more people are turning to those, and municipalities are making it illegal to plant calorie pear because of the, the damage that it is causing by invading. The Norway maple is also invading forest understories, primarily in northern Indiana. The issue with Norway maple is that you know, all trees are considered either shade-tolerant or shade-intolerant, and shade-tolerant trees are the ones that can grow in the understory, um, and, and do well in shade. And sugar maple is one of those trees. So that gives it a competitive advantage, and it, it establishes then and um, will succeed into you know, a, a sugar maple forest because I'm getting into all the basics of silviculture here, but um, usually a forest starts with sun-adapted uh, sun trees because it was open when the forest got established. And then in the understory of that, you get your shade-tolerant trees like sugar maple, and over the course of a few hundred years, the forest turns into sugar maple. Well, Norway maple is even more shade tolerant than sugar maple. So if you get sugar maple moving into the understory of a forest, it actually outcompetes sugar maple. And what you end up with is an understory filled with nothing but Norway maple because it's the most shade, shade tolerant species, and then you get a Norway maple forest. And all of the benefits that we think of when we think of sugar maple, whether it's, you know, it produces maple syrup or the many uh, insects that are adapted to sugar maple leaves and, um, you know, then the birds coming and eating those insects when they're migrating through an area, none of that is true for Norway maple. It has a noxious, milky sap, uh, sort of a latex um, that, that does not, let it be, it, it's not the, it does not fill the same ecological role that sugar maple does. It doesn't have all the benefits that we see with sugar maple. JCARD and the Invasive Species Advisory Committee included the calorie pear and the Norway maple in the invasive list they provided to the Department of Natural Resources. But the two highly invasive tree species didn't make it into the terrestrial invasive plants rule. We were disappointed that of the 46 highly invasive plant species that we assessed and recommended be made illegal, only 44 are going forward in the rule. Two were taken out, 
and so we are looking at ultimately you know fingers crossed once this rule is adopted that we would work to amend it in the coming years to uh put back in those species that are highly invasive Abraham, who is a division director at the Department of Natural Resources, says the state simply wants to educate the public about the hazard of calorie pear and Norway maple before banning the two tree species. They're hoping the tactic will reduce any negative economic impact. The intention was always to try and include those eventually. Right now we're working on the public. It's not really widely known that calorie pear can become such an issue in the environment. Um, so we're working with industry uh, and the plant industry and raising awareness with the general public to try and reduce the demand for this plant. But Jay Cart thinks those who deal in plants are already aware of the hazards of invasives. You know, I've had these conversations with plant sellers who sell invasives, and I say, you know, that thing is invasive, and, you know, it's growing up and down the roadside, and how can you keep selling it? And they shrug, and they say, Listen, I know, but I've got a very narrow profit margin. If I'm not going to sell it, the guy down the road is, and he's going to make that money. And I can't afford to lose sales over popular plants, even if they are invasive. And what it, what it comes down to, and what I've heard some sellers say is, it would be different if it was an even playing field. And that's why we think this rule is so important. Make everybody play by the same rules so that nobody is selling these invasive species. The public hearing on the terrestrial invasive species rule will be held on Wednesday, December 19th at 10 a.m. at 402 West Washington Street in Indianapolis. You can still comment on the proposed rule online at the Indiana Natural Resources Commission website. You can find the link by searching for the rulemaking docket. For WFHB, I'm Sarah Vaughn. And it's time for In Nature, written and recorded by EcoReport contributors, past and present. This is In Nature. Moles. Moles are small animals with soft, velvety fur and hand-like front paws with an extra thumb. They are industrious little creatures who have evolved into excellent diggers. Moles are not blind, as many believe, though their eyesight is poor. However, their sense of smell is keen. Male moles are called boars, and female moles are referred to as sows. Moles build lengthy underground tunnels to trap earthworms, which they can store for later consumption. They also eat insect pests like grubs and ants. Contrary to popular belief, moles are not eating the roots of your lawn, yet many homeowners are convinced they need to poison the small mammals or use traps with underground spears that can kill or seriously injure them. But instead of making a mountain out of a molehill, consider this. While moles may do cosmetic damage to lawns, their digging also has benefits. The busy mole actually helps keep the soil in your lawn aerated by mixing and loosening it. Also, the earth from molehills can be collected and used as potting soil. Frustration with moles can also be an invitation to shrink your lawn, include more native plants in your landscaping, and thereby reduce water consumption and the need for chemicals and poisons. You've been listening to In Nature.
There are two Christmas bird counts coming up in the WFHB listening area. The first one is on Saturday, December 15th at Brown County State Park and runs from 8.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Come be a part of the largest citizen science program in the world. Meet at the Brown County State Park Nature Center where you will divide into groups and head out into the park to look for birds. The second Christmas bird count is scheduled at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, December 23rd and runs from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Meet at the Grissom Memorial parking lot and be sure to dress for the weather. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Wes Martin. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Sarah Vaughn produced our feature. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our interim producer is Jan Walker, and executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and Get Out and Hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.